0: The moment you put your trust in Jesus Christ and you surrender to Him, you are made right in the sight of God. You are washed, justified right then. Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that the message today encourages you. For additional resources to inspire you in your journey with Christ, go to plainfieldchristian.com. Enjoy today's podcast. Good morning, church. Uh, If we haven't gotten the chance to meet yet, my name is Luke. I get to serve here as one of the ministers. We're glad to be together this morning. It's been a good day today Uh, already. It's been good, um, the things we've gotten to witness. I actually have some more big news for you today. Um, According to the internet, which is never wrong, I think we have a picture here for just a second. According to the internet, somewhere today, George Jetson's going to be born. Look at that. The show said that he's going to be born on July 31st, 2022. That's today, you guys. So there's literally no point in me telling you that. That doesn't tie into the sermon at any level. I just wanted to grieve together that we're not in flying cars yet. Can I get an amen this morning? I know, I know. We'll get there someday, right? Um, You know, I think there are very few places on planet Earth where people encounter God's grace more tangibly than in addiction recovery groups. I don't know if you've ever gotten the privilege to sit in on a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous or Celebrate Recovery, but you could just feel the grace in a room like that. And I think perhaps people encounter grace in rooms like that because at the very onset, every one of those meetings begins with acknowledging your condition Before anybody gets up to speak in an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, you've heard the line before. They'll say, hi, my name is Luke, and I'm an alcoholic. And then the room will say, hi, Luke. And I want to be a place of grace. And if we're going to be a place of grace together, that means that first we have to acknowledge our condition. So I'd like to just do a modified version of that here with you today, if that's all right. I'll say my part. And then if you'd be willing, I'd like you to say your part as well. Hi, my name is Luke, and I'm a sinner. Hi guys, (laughs) we're kicking off a brand new series today called Made New and we're looking at a letter written by a guy named Paul to an ancient church in the city of Rome. The letter is called Romans, very creatively named and we're gonna be flying over Paul's letter to the Romans over the next few weeks and getting a 10,000 foot view of it and I am giddy about this series. I've been looking forward to this because Romans is like a theological backstage pass to the cross, Now, when you read in the New Testament and you read the Gospels, the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which are the stories of Jesus' life on earth, you see what happens at the cross. You get an up-close picture of Jesus' death and resurrection. I mean, when you... Read the Gospels. You can hear the crack of the whip as it shreds Jesus' back. You can see the soldiers jam the crown of thorns on his head. You can see the blood pouring down his brow. You can watch them yank the hair from his beard. You can see them slap him. You can hear the crowds mocking and jeering. You can practically feel it as you read the Gospels when they're pounding the nails into Jesus' hands. You can see them raising the cross up. You can feel the thud as it settles into its hole and then you hear the resounding silence on Friday and Saturday as Jesus' body lays there in that tomb and as you read the gospels, then you are swept up with this breathless excitement and fear and confusion alongside the women and the disciples when they go to Jesus' tomb expecting to see Jesus' body there in the grave on Sunday morning as the sun is peeking up over the horizon and they're shocked when it's empty. And you can feel your heart skip a beat along with theirs when the angel says he's not here, he's risen. I mean, you get up close and personal on the cross in the gospels, and yet, you know what happens, you see it happen, but we don't totally know what it all means yet as you read the gospels, which is where the book of Romans comes in. Romans is like a backstage pass to all of that. And so we're gonna walk through the book of Romans in this series, and we're gonna explore some big Bible words together about what Jesus accomplished in his death and resurrection for us. Some big words like justification and reconciliation and resurrection and liberation and adoption and transformation, and When we're talking about how all these words mean that we are made new. You saw it on Haley's T-shirt right there. When you get saved, Jesus makes you new. And we're gonna explore different facets of what that looks like throughout the book of Romans and we're going to be talking about for all six weeks just the gospel the gospel just really simple and and I hope you're familiar with that word if you're not it's a big church word but it's a word that is worth being familiar with can you say it with me can you just say gospel Gospel. very good gospel is just a big church word that means good news specifically the good news of Jesus and Paul's theme verse for this whole letter to the Romans is Romans chapter one, verse 16, where he talks about the gospel. Paul says this, he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the good news about Jesus. He says, because it is the power. That Greek word there for power is the word dunamis, where we get our word for dynamite. So Paul's saying, hey, the good news about Jesus is the dynamite power of God, he says, that brings salvation to everyone who believes. The reason we're talking about the gospel for the next few weeks, church, is that the gospel is always the good news that the world needs most. And the gospel is always the good news that I need most. And the gospel is always the good news that you need most. And so for the next few weeks, as we walk through this letter to the Romans, I have two challenges for you, two challenges throughout this series. Here's challenge number one. I want you to read this letter. I want you to read Romans on your own throughout the week at whatever pace you want to, but I want you to read Romans because I believe that if you do, you will be changed. And I I say that because God has used the letter to the Romans to change the world over and over again. Ever since the birth of the church, kind of from that age on, the most influential theologian in church history is a guy named St. Augustine, and he was converted by reading Romans. Romans. Martin Luther, who kick-started the Protestant Reformation, converted by reading Romans. John Wesley, the man who started the Methodist movement, converted by reading Romans. Uh, My professor a couple weeks ago in grad school was kind of telling us a little bit of his life story. He grew up in the 60s, played in a band, was all strung out on LSD. You you name it, he did it. He lived the whole 60s life, right? And, And yet here he is teaching Bible at Wheaton College. And so we asked him, we said, man, Dr. V, when did you become a Christian? And he said, Uh, somewhere between Romans chapters three and four. (laughs) If you read Romans, you will be changed because it has changed the world over and over and over again and I believe that God will change you. That's challenge number one. I want you to read this letter. Now, we'll get to challenge number two later on, but let's go ahead and dive into God's word. Open your Bibles with me to the book of Romans if you haven't already. And we're gonna talk about the gospel today, the good news. But before the good news can be good news, Paul has to start this letter to the Romans by talking about the bad news. Because the good news ain't all that good if you don't think you're all that bad, right? And uh, that means that just real practically before we dive in, we're going to have to say some hard things together today, right? So if you got your steel-toed boots on, you're going to need them because we might do a little stepping on your toes today, okay? And uh, I I want you to know that I'm not wagging my finger today. I'm preaching to myself this morning and you're going to get to overhear it. And this is also one of the reasons why we have a commitment as a church to preach God's word. We preach the Bible. We don't just preach Luke's ideas because if we just preach Luke's ideas, we wouldn't talk about some of this hard stuff, all right? But because God talks about it, we've got to talk about it. So that means don't shoot the messenger. I don't write the mail. I just deliver it, okay? All right, ready to dive in? Got your boots on? Here we go. Right after Paul's thesis statement about how the gospel is the power of God to save anyone who believes, Paul says this, Romans chapter one, verse 18. He says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. That's a little bit of a downer, isn't it? (laughs) Because our culture today, we don't really like to talk about the wrath of God, and yet we've said even over the last few weeks here that God's wrath and his judgment are not contradictory to God's goodness and his love. Actually, God's wrath and his judgment are an extension of God's goodness and his love because God is not just interested in being nice, If being nice allows the poison of sin to continue to wreak havoc on the people that he loves. Yes, God is love and yes, God is good, but God is also holy, which means he's totally perfect. That means every part of who he is is diametrically opposed to sin and is actively working to destroy it. God is not just some smiling grandfather in heaven who tussles our hair when we misbehave and says, that's okay, try better next time. All throughout scripture when people encounter God, when they come in contact with the white hot blazing holiness of God, furious and towering, their reaction is to fall on their faces. In Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet Isaiah sees God and he sees that even the angels in the presence of God are covering their faces and they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And when Isaiah sees God, he falls down on his face too and he says, woe is me, I'm undone. "'Cause I'm an unclean man, I come from unclean people, "'and my eyes have seen a holy God.'" He knew that God was good and God was loving, but God is also holy, which means he hates sin. So Paul is right here when Paul says that God's wrath is coming on the sinfulness of the world. And that's actually really good news for the world, but it's bad news for you and me. <laughs> Because, you know, there's this common idea floating around in society today that, that we as human beings are basically good people, but the Bible doesn't actually teach that. The Bible says that, no, we're pretty messed up, that actually we're, we're not just good people who sometimes makes mistakes. The, the, the Bible says, no, actually, hi, my name is Luke, and I'm a sinner, Like a car that's out of alignment, right? If I take my hands off the steering wheel of my heart, that thing is constantly veering toward the ditch. I don't know about you. And and, and you know this. This is why in our system of government, we've got these three branches of government with separation of powers and systems of checks and balances between them because our founding fathers knew you can't trust the human nature left to its own devices. If you're a parent or a grandparent, you know this, right? Like my goodness, like I, we don't have to teach our kids to be bad, do we? Man, I've got three little boys at home. It's like raising a pack of wolves, y'all. They figured it out on their own. I gotta teach them to be good. <laughs> when, when my wife, Rebecca, and I, when we had our first kid, I'll just be totally honest, in my arrogant self, after a few months of this, I thought, well, man, I don't know what the big fuss was all about. <laughs> I think we've got this parenting thing down. This wasn't all that hard. I don't know what, what, the, what everybody's talking about. And then, then we had kids number two. And three, and and then I started thinking, oh, actually, I might be the worst parent that's ever lived. And I understand now why some animals eat their young. It makes sense (laughs) to me. I I get it, right? (laughs) Listen, y'all, we're Christians. (laughs) Which means that when we see people hurt other people, when we see people do dumb stuff, when we see people ruin their lives, we are grieved by it. But we're not surprised, because we know that people are sinners. I'm a sinner. And if you don't believe that this morning, there's two consequences that'll happen. If you don't believe the bad news that we're sinners, then you won't really appreciate the good news of God's grace, that's the first thing. But the second thing is, if you don't really believe the bad news that we're sinners, then you won't share the good news either. You'll think, ah, my neighbor's a pretty nice guy. I bet he'll be all right. And you will leave them exposed to the wrath of God. And and so Paul walks through here in Romans chapters one through three, and he surveys the entire human race to make his case that all of us are guilty and deserving of God's wrath. Specifically here, Paul's going to mention three types of people today, and I'm going to call them like this. Paul mentions the bad guys, the good guys, and God's guys, okay? Okay? Let's start over here with the people that I'm calling today the bad guys. Sometimes I like to watch an old Western movie and if you watch an old Western, you can always tell who the bad guy is, right? He's the guy in the black hat. And so Paul talks about the bad guys here in Romans chapter one. Yeah, now, the, the, you can see here who the bad guys are. The the bad guys, their, their motto might be, can we throw that back up on the screen? Their motto might be, I'll indulge myself, right? That's They want to do whatever their urges do. That you, they'd be at home in an escort service. They're going to follow their own rules. I know the escort service thing is a little bit of a dramatic example, but you can find bad guys everywhere. You can find them in a bar or a drug cartel or a corporate boardroom or a courtroom or in the criminal justice system. You can even find them in homes that look seemingly normal, but are trapped in cycles of abuse and neglect. Anywhere, you see people pursuing their own pleasure and living by their own urges with no regard for God Paul says those are the bad guys now if you're grieved like I am about where you see a lot of our society and our world heading and you wonder why it's like that I'd encourage you to read Romans chapter one it's the clearest explanation I've ever found Romans chapter one Paul gives an an expose of the wickedness of the human heart it's like he's Peeling back the layers of our societal onion. And he's showing what's at the root of all this dysfunction we're seeing. And Paul says that the outer layer that we see is that people celebrate evil. That's the outer layer that we see. We see that all around. If you don't believe me, just go watch a commercial this afternoon. Evil is not just tolerated, it's celebrated. But the layer beneath that, Paul says, is not just that people celebrate evil. Before that, they start to do evil. People do evil things, Paul says. Verses 28 through 31, here's his case. He says, hey, listen, the people around you, they do what ought not to be done. They've become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents, and they have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. That is a sharp list, you guys. But can you find yourself on that list? Because I sure can. Paul says what's going on in society is people celebrate evil. Beneath that, people do evil things. But beneath that, Paul says, there's another layer. Verse 28, Paul says, their minds have stopped working. And there's another layer even beneath that. Paul says the reason their minds have stopped working, verses 24 through 28, Paul says, is because God is judging people. God allows people to experience the mentally deforming effects of their own choices. And why would God do that? Because the bottom layer, Paul says, the root of all this, the thing that lies at the heart of all the brokenness you see in your own life, all the brokenness you see in your own family, the thing that lies at the heart of the brokenness we see in all of society is that people have replaced God. Verse 25 Paul says in the ESV, they've exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they've worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. That means that every corrupt politician and every conniving mistress and every neglectful father, every abuser lives a lifestyle that is effectively saying, hey, rather than allowing God to be God, I'm gonna rule my life instead. Now, you may hear that and you, you may not agree with me. You may think, well, what about those who don't know God? How could they consciously make a choice like that? But Paul says that actually God has made himself known to everybody already. He says here in Romans chapter one, in verse 20, he says, just look at creation. Look around you at the world. It was a beautiful morning, wasn't it? The heavens declare the glory of God. Every daffodil tells the story of a wise creator. Every mountain preaches a sermon. Every beach sunset sings a worship song. Every dolphin jumping, every hummingbird flying, every autumn breeze is a divine megaphone announcing to the universe that there's a God in heaven who is big and wise and good and strong and you need to get to know him. And yet, Paul says the bad people They have turned their backs on God, even what could be known about God through creation. And the difficult truth is that when they turn their backs on him, God will turn his back on them three times. In Romans chapter one, Paul says, God gave them over to their sins. God allows people to experience the full weight of their own choices. And that means that God's wrath is coming for the bad guys. And listen, that's good news That's good news for those who are oppressed. That's good news for those who are marginalized. That's good news for those who are victims. But it's bad news for me. Because I've been that guy. A lot of us have. Hi, my name's Luke. I'm a sinner. Now, I think we can mostly agree today that we want the wrath of God to come on the bad guys in the world. We want justice to happen. But here's where it gets tough. Paul says that God's wrath isn't just coming for the guys in black hats. It's coming for the guys in white hats too. It's coming for the good guys. In Romans chapter two, Paul describes the good guys here. Their motto is, I'll compare myself. And they appear nice. They follow society's rule. They, they do things like community service, right? They, they volunteer, and, and, and they, they love their families. They, they do all kinds of good things. They pay their taxes, salute the flag, donate blood, coach Little League. They know they're not perfect, but at least they're better than those guys, right? And yet at the end of the day, the problem is that good guys, even them, they trust their own morality instead of trusting God. Now, this is human nature, isn't it? Most of us, I think, tend to view ourselves as better than we actually are. Let me do a little bit of audience participation here to try to make my point. Uh, And be honest, for starters, okay? No lying in church. Can we agree? God is watching you. Um, Raise your hand if you think you're a better than average driver. Raise your hand if you think you're a better than average driver. Oh, come on. I'm assuming that those of you who are not raising your hands are not being honest, which also confirms my point, okay? Either way, I win. Like, I think most of us think we're better than average drivers, which is literally a physical impossibility, right? Most of us have a bias toward ourselves. A few years ago, there was a survey done uh, that asked the question, who do you think is most likely to get to heaven? And then it listed a bunch of people. And uh, Mother Teresa, she scored pretty highly. She got 79%. Princess Diana came in at 60%. Even Bill Clinton got over half at 52%. Poor Dennis Rodman, though, he only came in at 28%. (laughs) But in first place, even far beyond Mother Teresa, with an overwhelming margin of victory, 87% of the respondents said, me, I'm most likely to go to heaven. We tend not to see ourselves all that accurately, do we? And yet God does, Romans chapter two, verse 16, Paul says, God judges people's secrets. God knows the thought in your mind right now. He knows you're thinking, ugh, when is this sermon going to be over, right? You know who you are. He knows you're thinking, okay, when can we get out of here and go beat the Baptist to brew burger? okay? We'll get there, hang tight, okay? But at a deeper level, God also knows the times when, even though our behavior on the outside is fine, internally our hearts and minds can still be warped. He knows when we are thinking things like, man, I'm jealous of her. I I hate how much people love her. That guy, man, he has a way nicer truck than me. He's so greedy and materialistic. (laughs) That guy has a way junkier truck than me. He's so much farther down on the totem pole than I am. (laughs) He knows when we think, man, she's, she's pretty attractive. I'll just let my gaze linger a little longer. He knows when we're running late for a meeting because we didn't get around on time, but we can just walk in and say, oh, sorry guys, it was the traffic. You know, The good guys, they may not physically cheat on their spouses. They may not physically swindle people, but their hearts can still be far from God, Paul says. He says later in Romans chapter 14 that everything that does not come from faith is sin. So that means that even when we do good things that are motivated by selfishness and not by faith in God, that's still sin. Sometimes, yes, the devil does want to lure you into immorality, but sometimes the devil just wants to lure you into morality that is divorced from the grace of God. That's a spiritual cancer in Hendricks County. Just be a nice person, you don't need God. Because the great temptation of morality is to compare ourselves to others, right? A few weeks ago, my family's sitting around the dinner table and we're getting ready to pray before we eat, so I pray, we say amen, we look up and one of my sons says, Dad, he didn't close his eyes during the prayer. <laughs> like, bro, how did you know, right? <laughs> and yet <laughs> and yet, I can't throw stones at him because I do the same thing, don't you? Man, at least I'm not as bad as that guy. And when we compare ourselves to others, we fall right into the devil's Trap, because you know what God did not command us? He did not say, hey, just be a little better than your neighbors. He did not say, hey, just be a nice person. God said in 1 Peter chapter 1, be holy, because I'm holy. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Okay is not okay. Good guys are not really good guys, because morality that is based on comparison and judgment does not fly in the sight of God. And so, Paul says about the good guys in Romans chapter 2. He says, So, when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you'll escape God's judgment? And the answer is no. Even the good guys deserve God's wrath. And that's bad news for me because I've been this guy. Hi, my name's Luke. I'm a sinner. But if you thought that was tough, Paul really starts to hit a little closer to home here because he's talked about the bad guys, he's talked about the good guys, and now he starts talking about God's guys. He's talking about us. In Romans chapter two, for these people, Paul says, their motto is, I'll save myself. I'll save myself. Now, they don't just wanna be good people, they wanna be God's people, so they're gonna follow God's rules, and they're at home in a church service, church services just like this, and they'll just do the stuff without having God. You know, when Paul is writing this letter to the Romans, a large portion of the audience that he's writing to are Jewish, so I've got my little Jewish yarmulke here, right? And the Jews thought that since they were God's people, they followed the laws, they got circumcised, they didn't eat the things they weren't supposed to eat, they did the feasts and the celebrations and they went to synagogue. They thought since they were God's people, they're good. That still happens today. In churches all across the country this morning, people who are in the pews, every Sunday they've been baptized, they tithe, they don't smoke, drink chew, or go with girls who do. They've got their Bible app with a verse a day to keep the devil away. They can quote John three sixteen. They listen to Caleb and they've got the little fish magnet on their bumper. If that's you, I'm not trying to make fun of you. I'm one of those people, okay? I grew up in church. And it's dangerous. Because I thought that as long as I stayed in church and kept coming and nodded my head at the right moments to what the preacher was saying, then I was good. But Paul would say two things to God's guys. He'd say, number one, you don't get in on other people's faith. The Jews thought they were good because of their historic identity as the people of God. But being born in the Bible belt doesn't make you a Christian. And being born into a Christian family doesn't make you a Christian. God has a lot of spiritual children but he has no spiritual grandchildren, if you know what I mean. You don't get to piggyback in on other people's faith. Second thing Paul would say is this, you don't get in on your religious excellence. You don't get in on your religious excellence. Now the Pharisees of Jesus' day They were religiously excellent. They had a deep desire to be holy as God is holy. Now for the Jews, there were different standards in those days for how the priests were called to live and how the average everyday people were called to live. The priests were held to a stricter standard. But the Pharisees were just these, they they weren't priests. They were these middle-class, working, average Joes who wanted to take God seriously. And they said, actually, let's make the standards for priests The same standards for everybody else. Let's start taking holiness really, really seriously. and Maybe then we'll purify the land and the Messiah will come. And so they did, man. They took holiness seriously. The Pharisees, they didn't just tithe on their money. Jesus said they tithed on their dill seeds. They tithed on their spice cabinet, y'all. When's the last time you tithed on your pantry? Like they took this stuff really, really seriously. And so the Pharisees, they had this Vision to make every house holy and every table a temple. And man, you know what that sounds like to me? Sounds like good leadership. Sounds like a church I'd want to go to. Sounds like they've got a really clear mission and vision and values. And that is like some intentional, rigorous discipleship. I love it. The only problem with it was that God did not require it. God said, I want mercy, not sacrifice. I want your hearts, not your spices. And so Jesus saved his harshest words of criticism for the Pharisees. He called them a brood of vipers. He called them whitewashed tombs. You're all painted up on nice on the outside, but you're dead on the inside. Matthew chapter five, Jesus says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. And so Paul says to the God's guys here in Romans chapter two, he says, listen, a person's not a Jew who's only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a a person's a Jew who's one inwardly and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Jesus, Jesus wants your heart. And religious people whose hearts are far from God are the people that anger God the most. In the Old Testament, when the priests, Nadab and Abihu, they come into the tabernacle looking like a real thing, but they're keeping sin harbored in their hearts, God struck them dead. And in the New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira, they come into church looking like a real thing, looking like they're being generous, but they're harboring sin in their hearts, and God struck them dead. And so today, listen, this is difficult, but it would be pastoral malpractice of me not to tell you that today, if you are harboring sin in your heart, do not think that simply coming to church every Sunday and nodding your head along with the sermon will spare you from the wrath of God. And I'm saying this because I love you dearly. But Paul wrote to a church that was doing that, and maybe this is what you need to hear today in Galatians chapter six, where Paul said, do not be deceived, God will not be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. So if you're sitting here week in and week out and you are un moved by the spirit of God and you're playing the part without really fully giving him your heart, God is not kidding when he talks about his wrath. Sin's not a joke, you guys. And church ain't a game. God will fulfill his word and he will purify his church and he will judge those whose hearts are in rebellion against him. Which is good news for God's church, but it's bad news for me (laughs) because I've been this guy a lot. My name's Luke, I'm a sinner. So I don't know which category you fit into today. I don't know if you'd call yourself a bad guy or a good guy or God's guy. I don't I don't know who you are, but but Paul says, all three of them, here's the verdict, Romans chapter 3, verse 10. He says, There is no one righteous. Not even one. (laughs) Got your boots on? I love you. I I even like you. I really, really love you guys. But scripture says that you are a wicked, depraved, hopelessly corrupt person. And until you understand that, you won't truly appreciate what Jesus has done for you. Every one of us, the problem is so much more worse than we could have possibly imagined. That's the bad news. And here's the good news. You are more loved than you ever dared to hope. Because right in the middle of your mess, here's what Paul says in Romans chapter three, verses 21 through 26. This has been called the most important paragraph ever written. Paul says, but now. Man, I love those two words. That's my story. I hope it's yours too. Man, I was lost. I was broken. I was utterly unable to help myself. But now, but now the righteousness of God has been made known. To which the law and the prophets testify. Because in his forbearance, he left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Christ. The head of a large mental hospital in England once said, I could dismiss half of my patients tomorrow if they could be assured of forgiveness. We're all sinners, church. But I want you to know this morning that you can be assured of forgiveness. No matter which hat you're wearing, no matter what somebody did to you, no matter what you have done, when you did it, how often you did it, how recently you did it, you can be made right in the sight of God. It's called justification. That's the big word we're talking about today. Justification, being made right in the sight of God. And it's not a process. It's not something you have to earn. It happens in an instant In an instant, the moment you put your trust in Jesus Christ and you surrender to him, you are made right in the sight of God. You are washed by his blood, just like Haley was earlier, justified right then. And so listen, the moment that you trust Jesus, the moment that you throw yourself on the mercy of God and you say, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me because I'm a sinner, you're washed clean. And, And I don't know where you stand today, but I want you to know that this is what God requires of you. Faith. He wants faith. He wants faith to throw yourself upon him and he will save you. And he has saved you if you have done that because the Son of God, Jesus Christ on the cross, he took the wrath of God on your behalf and on mine. So in that moment that Jesus died, God was both just, Paul says in that moment, exercising wrath upon the sin of the world, and he was justifier making us right in his eyes. And now because he's alive, you can be alive in him. Romans chapter four, Paul says, he was delivered over to death for our sins and he was raised to life for our justification. At the beginning of the sermon, I told you I had two challenges for you today. Number one was to go read the letter to the Romans. And here's challenge number two. You've heard the gospel today, the good news of what Jesus has done for you. Let the gospel move you. That's my challenge, let the gospel move you. Some of you in the room today, um, maybe you haven't surrendered to Jesus even for the first time, and you need to do that today. Or maybe you believe in Jesus, but you've not fully surrendered, you haven't been baptized like we saw Haley be earlier. Man, you need to do that, and you need to do it now. You can do it, you can be made new today, you can trust him, you can let the gospel move you, we're ready for you, we got lots of towels and shirts and t-shirts and like shorts and stuff, Like we're good, okay? You can do it today. The prayer team's gonna be gathering around the edges of the room for the remainder of the service and they'll have those green lanyards on and we are ready for you. Let the gospel move you. And if you have surrendered to Jesus as most of us have in this room, hey, keep letting the gospel move you. Week in and week out, would you come before God today and would you just say, hey, Lord, it's me again and I'm still a sinner. But thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. That's what we're gonna do right now. That's what we do every week. Did you take out your communion? Something I'm trying to work on about communion is that I'm I'm trying to stop saying that I'm taking communion. I don't think communion's something we take. I'm receiving it today. This is a gift that I just get to accept. So we're gonna receive communion together today. You're gonna receive this little piece of bread And I want you to say thank you to Jesus for his body that was nailed to the cross on your behalf. I'll give you a moment to do that on your own and then we'll pray and then we're gonna receive this cup together. The blood of Jesus that is our only hope that washes us clean in the sight of God.